Welcome back, welcome back. All right, let's gather it together again. I know we had a week off without seeing each other, uh, but we're back now, uh, which is exciting. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, last week we had the snow and that kind of disrupted our schedule. Um, we are still continuing the thread series. We are still in the New Testament now. It's not like we're going backwards now. We thought we'd just like surprise you and surprise, we're in Habakkuk again or something like that. But no, we're, we are in the New Testament um, and we are going to keep doing all books of the Bible. We we're going to do Matthew last week, but we kind of switched some things around. Uh, on our website under the sermon page, you can see a preaching calendar of what's coming next. Basically, we're doing Mark today and then Matthew uh, tomorrow and then uh, John and then Luke. So we'll do all four Gospels kind of in a weird order. Luke will be on uh, Easter Sunday and then we'll do Acts hopefully all the way through Revelation. So that's, that's the plan. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to watch an intro video to the book of Mark, and then we'll dive in. Will you pray with me? Father God, thank you for gathering us here uh, this morning. I thank you for what you're going to do when we open your word. Um, as we've been in the Old Testament, Father, we've seen Jesus on every page. We're following the thread of that story, and yet it's, there's something special about opening the pages and seeing a story about Jesus there. Um, would you magnify your son this morning? Help us to see more and more of him, more and more of our need of him. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The book of Mark was written by Mark, a missionary alongside Jesus' apostle Peter, sometime between 55 and 59 A.D., Mark's intent in writing was to encourage Roman Christians of the truth of the Messiah's identity and strengthen their faith amidst persecution. The book begins by introducing John, baptizing and proclaiming the coming Messiah as Isaiah the prophet had foretold. Jesus goes to John to be baptized and God's Spirit descends on him, affirming Jesus as his beloved Son, the Savior of God's people. After his baptism, Jesus begins his ministry of healing and forgiveness, calling on insignificant fishermen and other lowly men to leave their lives and follow him. Jesus poses a question to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter pictures Jesus as a victorious king from the line of David, come to end Rome's hold on Israel. Jesus tries to reshape their misplaced conceptions of the Messiah, but the disciples still do not understand. On his final night with the disciples, Jesus celebrates the Passover meal with new meaning. He points to the bread and wine as symbols of his body and blood, the necessary sacrifice that will liberate his people from sin and death. As he promised, Jesus is taken away to be killed crushing the disciples' hope for all that God had promised. On the third morning after his death, two women visit Jesus' tomb and are stunned to find an angel announcing Jesus' resurrection from the dead, fulfilling what he had said would happen. The disciples meet the risen Jesus and begin preaching the significance of his resurrection to the world, finally understanding the need for his sacrificial death. 
Melissa and I, we moved to Duluth about two years ago. Uh, but first, we visited and we went on a tour of the city with one of our elders, uh, Dave Mesogetic, and his wife, Melanie. I see they're over here. Uh, we ended the tour of Duluth on that overlook at Skyline Parkway where you can just see the whole city. Now, Melissa and I had come from the flatlands of Illinois, so we were just in awe. And, Whoa, there's the whole city and you can see the bridge and the snow and all that. Um, but while our jaws were hanging open, I remember, Dave, I don't know if you remember saying this, he reminded us that it was the end of February, and he said, quote, this is the ugly time of the year. This is mud season, <laughs> uh, which is pretty true. Uh, we're in that season right now. I think about that story whenever I hear the words mountaintop experience. Have you heard that phrase? It's kind of a Christian cliche, that mystical, transcendent event where you feel connected to God and full of faith. Maybe you've had a moment like that in your life. But for most Christians, our experiences of faith in God are more like the mud season. It's ordinary. It's messy. It's sometimes a struggle. Those of us who are followers of Jesus, we like to think of faith as a constant, a permanent trust and intimacy with God, but the realities of faith are far more complicated. This morning, we're looking at a story about Jesus casting out a demon in the Gospel of Mark chapter 9, but in order to understand that story, we need to know what came right before it. So Jesus went up on a high mountaintop with a few of his disciples, and he revealed to them there the majesty and radiance of his glory. So we at Rock Hill, we believe that Jesus is fully God and fully human. And for a brief moment on that mountaintop, he let his divinity shine in an intense way for what's called the transfiguration. It was a literal mountaintop experience of faith for the disciples. But as we'll see in a moment, their faith, or rather their lack of faith, was about to be confronted as soon as they came down from the mountain. So I've got a, a painting here uh, up on the slide. We'll see if we can get it there. Yeah, so that's a painting by Raphael from the Renaissance, and it's, it shows these two scenes side by side. Up at the top, you have the transfiguration and Jesus' glory, and then down at the bottom, you have much darker colors that muted tones, Jesus casting out a demon, that lower story is what we're looking at today. Uh, the disciples were about to realize, as many of us have realized, that faith, which for our purposes we can define as trust or belief, faith is really difficult sometimes. Our conviction and reliance on God is often deficient. It's often really weak. Uh, we forget God's trustworthy character his immense power. We forget his faithfulness to his people. On Sunday morning, Christians gather together here and we come to corporate worship. We're filled with hopefully joy and peace and dependence on God. And then by Sunday afternoon, or maybe on the car ride home from church, we start to get anxious about something again. We're filled with that fear. Or maybe we start to go into self-reliance mode. Or maybe we just kind of forget about God entirely until the next Sunday. Faith is not easy, even for mature followers of Jesus. Faith is a difficult concept for secular people as well. Uh, for secular people today, religious faith is often viewed as one of two extremes. It is either powerless or it, it uses its power for evil. So on the one hand, faith in God is just a comfortable, warm blanket for those who really need it, 
to get through life's troubles, but it doesn't have the power to change anything about our situation. And on the other hand, faith is just a slippery slope to becoming a fanatic or a zealot. You know, belief in God has caused so many atrocities in human history, it would be better for everyone if we just abandoned that dangerous delusion. So in the secular mind today, faith is often either impotent or it's extremist. But in the story we're going to read today, Jesus confronts both of those narratives. He shows how the faith of his followers, the people who, are his, who follow him, is something that fits into neither of those categories. And in doing so, Jesus is going to teach us what it means to trust in him and how that belief, that faith, can change our lives. So, this morning, my hope is that this big idea would begin to sink down into your heart and reveal something new about Jesus, whom we worship here. And if you're not a Christian, my hope is that it would reveal something new to you about Christian faith. So, this is the big idea of this passage in Mark. Uh, Christian faith is both more powerful and more humbling than we can imagine. It's both more powerful and more humbling than we can imagine. We're going to unpack that as we walk through this story. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. So if you have a Bible, there's one under the seat if you need one. It'll also be up on the screen. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14. Uh, This story has three movements that we're going to look at. The failure of faith, the struggle of faith, and the promise of faith. That's where we're headed. The failure, the struggle, And the promise. Let's start reading the story now. In verse 14, Mark chapter 9, as we look at the failure of faith. Verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. When Jesus comes down from the mountain of transfiguration, he steps into this massive, confused mess. It's, it's an argument between his disciples and the Jewish leaders, and there's this growing crowd to witness it all. And we soon learn the reason for this chaos. A, a father brought his son to the disciples while Jesus was away. And this boy, we're told, is possessed by a spirit that harms him, causing all kinds of terrible pains. Now, it's very common for contemporary people to read this and think, oh, those primitive people back then. They saw all those symptoms that this boy was having, and they attributed them to demons because they didn't have modern medical science. Uh, We would diagnose epilepsy or something like that. But we must remember that ancient people had medicine too. They knew many things about how the body worked. No, the real issue is that most Western people don't believe in spirits or demons, so every problem must only have a natural cause, either it's physiological or it's psychological. But around the world today, as well as in ancient times, there was an understanding that problems in this world can come not only from natural causes, but also from supernatural causes. 
C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Miracles, that the religious person actually has a more open mind than the secular person. Has more more of an open mind because we don't rule out the possibility that spirits can cause harm. So in the mind of the the author Mark, demons do exist. They do have the power to cause these epileptic-like symptoms that this boy was experiencing. So the issue in this passage is not whether or not evil spirits exist. We can talk about that, and we'll discuss it a little bit later. The real issue is that Jesus' disciples can't do anything to help this father or this boy. Earlier in the book of Mark, Jesus had given the disciples authority to cast out demons, and they had done so successfully in the past, but here they're powerless. Uh, Jesus responds with these words in verse 19. O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Jesus makes statements like this a couple of times in the Gospels, and I'm going to be honest with you. Every time I read it, it really makes me uncomfortable. You know, it, it kind of sounds like Jesus is rolling his eyes, uh, or, or worse, that he's sneering in irritation. But notice what he says directly after that. Bring him to me. Jesus springs into action here. He doesn't say, oh, forget this. I'm done here. I'm done with these people. I give up on them. Jesus expresses frustration, yes, but that, that frustration does not result in rejection. It results in rescue. By showing these emotions, Jesus is following a pattern in the Bible of prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah who deeply felt the burden of ministering to stubborn people. And interestingly, Jesus doesn't call out specifically the disciples or the religious opponents or the crowd itself. He calls everybody there a faithless generation. He, he is diagnosing a corporate pervasive problem that everybody shares. In some ways, he's describing the human condition. Everybody is faithless, unbelieving, untrusting in God. So here we have a boy being tormented, a father who feels helpless as he watches his child suffer, and nobody can help here. Not the religious leaders of the day, not the close companions of Jesus, not the bystander crowd. Nobody believes that God can fix this, or at least their faith in God is weak. Have you ever looked around you at the sufferings of the world, the wars, the natural disasters, the injustice, the greed, the anger, the lust, and you've just thought, it all seems so hopeless. Who in the world can fix this? Have you ever seen an innocent person, or worse, a child, suffering? from something that is not their fault at all, and you've been helpless to do anything, and you just feel deep in your bones, it's not supposed to be this way. Jesus feels that pain. In the Gospel of Matthew, it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus sees our helplessness. He sees us being harassed by the enemy, by the cares of this world, he sees our pitiful attempts at faith. When things go wrong, when life turns dark, when the worst happens, some people cling to God, some people don't cling to God, but the one thing that we all have in common, all human beings, is that our faith isn't as strong as it should be. 
We might have a little candle flickering in the darkness, but who has a bonfire of faith? Not, not me. Jesus sees the darkness. He sees our little candles of belief, and he says, how long will it be like this? How long will I have to endure people who don't want to believe? How long before the world is made right as God made it in the beginning? But he doesn't stop there. Graciously, joyfully, he rolls up his sleeves and he gets to work. So that's the failure of faith. Now let's look at the struggle of faith, starting in verse 20. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus steps up to the boy, there's a convulsion from the Spirit who knows that unlike all the others in this crowd, Jesus actually has the power to do something here. I love Jesus' question in verse 21. How long has this been happening to him? You can imagine him kind of kneeling down. He's, he's studying the boy with his observant eyes. It's kind of like a doctor who's going to provide a diagnosis. He's, he's going to provide treatment. And the heartbreaking answer from the father to this question is that this boy, we don't know how old he is, has been suffering this way for years. And it gets even worse. It's not just that he has these physical symptoms that are terrible enough. The spirit inside him has put the boy into danger. Not only once, not only twice, but over and over and over again. It's unclear to us why Killing the boy would be to this spirit's advantage, but demons are portrayed in the Bible as purely destructive creatures. They're more evil than rational. Some of you are in the toddler stage or you're out of that stage, but you remember having little kids where, you know, you just need constant vigilance for the little ones when they're under a certain age, you know. I, I've talked to parents where they have that feeling of, it's quiet, too quiet. What are they getting up to? You know, that's, that's bad enough. But we have to understand that what this father has been living like for years. It's not just keeping my boy out of danger. It's that there is something controlling my son that is actively seeking to destroy him. We have to empathize with this exhausted, discouraged father who has for years kept his boy alive from a force he doesn't understand. And in light of this serious of an issue and how long it's been happening, it's no wonder that there's a touch of hopelessness in his words when he says, but if you can do anything, have compassion and help us. He's uncertain that things can change, and wouldn't you be too? Notice that he asked Jesus for two things, compassion and help. Both of them are necessary. Someone may feel great compassion for those in need, but have no resources or power to help. Or someone may have plenty of resources, but they don't care enough to help. Jesus has both the compassion and the authority 
to do something here. Jesus picks up on the father's uncertainty in this short conversation, and he gives him this gentle but awe-inspiring teaching. All things are possible for one who believes. All things are possible for one who believes. Yes, he's speaking in hyperbole, but still let the weight of that promise hit you. In Matthew's version of this story, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it'll do it. It's not that with enough faith you can do anything. It's not about having superpowers. It is rather that God has the power to do anything, anything. Elsewhere, Jesus says, with God, all things are possible. So let me ask you this morning, what do you think is impossible? What do you think is impossible? Not just in the world at large, but in your own life. Healing from your chronic pain, cancer, forgiveness for your worst mistake. Do you believe it's impossible for a stubborn person in your life to change, for you to ever find romantic love, for you to have children. It is not impossible. I'm not saying it's going to happen because we follow the will of our good God and sometimes he says no to our requests because he has a better yes down the road. But what I want you to to grasp and to believe today is that it is not impossible There's not a category of impossible for God. There's just yes, no, or later. The Father's response here to Jesus' words is one of the most profound statements in the whole Bible about faith. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. It's a very famous statement. What does it mean? I believe is a decision, despite our wavering feelings, to step out in faith, to trust, despite the circumstances, despite my feelings, because I know that God is trustworthy. Help my unbelief is a recognition, though, that our humanity is still weak and that only, a part, uh, only in the power of God will we have sufficient faith. And ironically, that second statement is also a cry of faith because it is a prayer. Calling on God for greater faith is trusting in him rather than ourselves. I want to take a few minutes to unpack this idea because the implications are so rich for us. When I was a freshman in college, I had a major depressive episode um, that lasted for a long while. I felt like I had lost my entire identity. I didn't know who I was Because of all that uncertainty, even though I had been a Christian for many years, I started to doubt some of the most fundamental things that I said I believed. Like, number one was the fact that I was truly loved and accepted by God. That was chief in my mind of, I'm not really sure I believe that. And those questions scared me. Have you ever had questions like that? Questions you don't even want to name out loud. Questions that... When you think them, you begin to feel guilty. Some of you grew up in contexts and churches where you couldn't doubt. You couldn't even ask questions because you'd be shunned if you gave voice to what you'd wondered. 
The worst night for my depression was on October 6, 2011. It was just a really dark place for me. Uh, I was crying out to God, not knowing if he was listening. Six days later, on October 12, 2011, I walked into Dr. Bruce Benson's afternoon Philosophy 101 class. I was a philosophy major. I think everybody should be a philosophy. College students, talk to me. I'll convince you to be a philosophy major. The most practical of majors, really. But I've still got the typed notes on the left there. Those are my actual notes. You can't really read them too much, but at the top it has the date of October 12th, 2011. Those are the notes from that class. And I didn't know that God would use this lecture, among some other things, to change everything I knew about faith. And Dr. Benson's main idea was this. A Christian is someone who can hold both faith and doubt together at the same time. And he used as his example this father in Mark 9, I believe, help my unbelief. The father is confessing both his faith and his doubt to Jesus. He's saying, Jesus, I know in my soul that you have the power to heal and to save, but I also know how easily I disbelieve, how quickly I forget. I don't have the ability to understand why all this is happening. I don't know how you're going to make it better, but I'm clinging to my belief in you. Dr. Benson used as an illustration uh, a light switch versus a dimmer switch. So, you got one up there. Uh, We commonly think of faith as an on-off switch. Either you have faith or you don't have faith. But this father is showing that faith in the Bible is actually a dimmer switch. It goes up and down. You can grow and shrink in faith. But the existence of doubt does not mean that you do not have faith. Tim Keller put it another way. He he said that all doubt requires belief. All doubt requires belief. Why? Because you can't doubt belief A on the basis of belief B without believing in belief B. Now, if that's confusing, that's fine. The point is that belief is a journey that every person, religious or not, is traveling on. In the Christian life, we can never have the last word on anything. But that doesn't mean we can't have a sure word about some things. Let me say that again. Understanding will revolutionize the way you see faith. In the Christian life, we can never have the last word about anything. But that doesn't mean we don't get to have a sure word about some things. Christians are people who are wise enough to know that we know very little. (laughs) And even the first step of faith is admitting to God, we don't have it all together. We need him. We don't know how to live our lives the way we ought to. One of my mentors liked to say that we're all pea brains. He would say it over and over again. Just admit it. We're all pea brains. We all puff ourselves up. We all pose like we're not pea brains, but we're all pea brains. How little do we know? So we can never have the last word about anything. But we worship a God who has revealed truth to us. So we can have a sure word about some things. For example, we know that God is good that he has given us his word, that his son is the savior, that we are saved by grace and grace alone. And yet even with those truths, do you understand them fully? No. You go deeper and deeper in your understanding. There's always more to learn. Now, why does this matter? In my experience, Christians usually struggle to admit our doubt or our uncertainty. It's kind of a taboo. We project a strong, confident image of faith 
because we believe that a faithful person in God never shows a shred of weakness or insecurity. We think that asking, questioning, pausing, thinking, discussing are not proper for a person of faith, but that is a lie. In the Bible, the strongest men and women of faith are those who get on their knees in prayer and ask for help. In this story, the person who has the most faith is the father who says, I'm filled with unbelief, help me. The mature believer is the one who asks the difficult questions and asks them boldly and without guilt, trusting that we don't need to know everything, we can't know everything. And yet we can ask the questions nonetheless and trust in the God who does know everything. So I would encourage you to ask yourself, what would happen if you admitted your doubts? Maybe you even need to admit that you have doubts to begin with. What would happen if you admitted your doubts, both to God and to others here in trusted community? God invites your questions. He's not afraid of them. And neither are we here at Rock Hill. This is a space where you can have doubt. If we were to all have these sorts of conversations with each other, we'd create a culture that's friendly to those who come into the church and they're not sure about this Christianity thing. If we start to have these conversations with each other, we begin to remove uh, the mask of what we call faith, faith that has no questions whatsoever, which is really just immature faith. And we'd replace it with a truer, deeper faith. So I would encourage you to make this prayer of the Father your prayer. Whenever you read the Bible and you have no idea what it means, whenever you hear a challenge to your beliefs and it really messes you up, when you suffer something painful, and you don't know how you're going to get through it, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Doubt with God, and he will meet you where you are. So that's the failure of faith, the struggle of faith. Finally, how does the story end? with a promise of faith starting in verse 25. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up And he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So Jesus uses his authority and his power to command the spirit to leave the boy, and it happens. No question, it happens. But the way that the spirit leaves in this story is pretty violent. I've never seen the exorcist because I'm kind of a wimp. And I'll get nightmares when I watch horror movies. Some of you guys are horror movie buffs. I can't do it. But verse 26 is kind of how I imagine it. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. Now we're told in that awful stillness that happens right after this, you can imagine just a crowd going silent, wondering What has just happened, and is this boy alive? We're told he's like a corpse, which seems to indicate that he is still alive. But the language used in the next verse of Jesus grasping him by the hand, lifting him up, raising him up, 
It's the same words that were used when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, and it's led some to think that this is a subtle allusion to resurrection. Now, that might be taking it too far. At the very least, we're meant to see that Jesus has the power to renew and restore life, even when everything seems hopeless. Then immediately after this scene, the disciples kind of pull Jesus aside and they ask him, what was going on? Like, we've cast out demons before, why not this one? And Jesus' reply in verse 29, how can we say, is incredibly cryptic. <laughs> it's been debated endlessly. He just kind of drops the mic and then the story moves on. He says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And we didn't imagine the disciples going, okay, what do I do with that? I don't know. What does that mean? Does, does Jesus mean this kind of demon? Like some demons are more powerful than others? Now, there are a lot of uh, exorcism stories in the New Testament, and some of them seem easy. You know, get out of this person, and they just go out. Others of them are more dramatic, uh, kind of like this story or the, the legion of demons from the man of Gerasene. So there might be degrees of demonic oppression, but all of this raises questions that the text doesn't answer. We don't know if the disciples asked follow-up questions or they were just kind of like, okay, we're going to save that conversation for a later date. We're going to have to talk about that. You probably have questions as well that come from this. Uh, for example, one question I get often is whether a Christian could be possessed by an evil spirit. Uh, I think the short answer is no. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. But it's worth a longer conversation, maybe with a cup of tea or coffee. I'd love to talk with you about it. But as we ask these sorts of questions, we need to understand that sometimes we are more curious about spirits and demons than the Bible is concerned with telling us answers. <laughs> some of you might not be there at all. I mean, some of you might be walking in here and just the whole discussion about demons and the spiritual realm, it just sounds like fairy tale talk. And I get it. It's okay to be there for now. Um, but for others of us, we have to wrestle with the fact that the, tech, the, the rest of the New Testament, it doesn't spend a lot of time talking about casting out demons. It just doesn't. It doesn't answer a lot of the questions that we want answered. What's more prominent about evil spirits is the teaching that we do have a spiritual enemy and that our response should be to stand firm in our faith, trusting and relying on the protection of God. This leads us to the other puzzling thing in Jesus' remark. I wonder if you noticed it, his reference to prayer, because prayer has not been mentioned so far in the story. Mark doesn't even mention Jesus praying here. So he says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer, but then we don't see Jesus pray. That's kind of strange. Yet what is prayer? It's more than just communicating to God. It is acknowledging our dependence on God for all of our needs. We can suppose that Jesus' disciples were going around casting out demons, healing people, and they were beginning to think that all that power came from themselves, came from their own authority, came from their status as disciples. But Jesus reminds them that they have no power of their own. It is only by faith, and prayer is an expression of that faith, that we can tap the infinite power of God. It's similar to what he said earlier in the story. All things are possible to the one who believes. And prayer is a practical way that we ask for God to do the impossible. 
So this leads us back to the big idea that we said at the very beginning, a way to sum up the story. The Christian faith is both more powerful and more humbling than we can imagine. We've seen the power. Even amidst doubt, Jesus says all things are possible for the one who believes, and he proves it. He shows it right there. This little boy who was tormented for years, he's changed his life, is changed completely. And we've seen the humility of faith that goes along with it. The father who believes, but who longs for Jesus to overcome his unbelief. The disciples who lack faith, but they're told to pray for the impossible because we have enemies and sufferings that we cannot overcome on our own. True faith is not just a warm blanket. It has real power. And yet, faith, true faith, does not lead to oppression or abuse. It leads us to cry out to God in dependence and humility. But there's one more thing that we need to learn about true faith, and that is the person at the center of the story, the person that we put our faith in, Jesus. In the story that immediately comes after ours, Jesus taught his disciples what would happen to him soon, and he said this, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. The Son of Man who you just saw say to a demon, hey, get out of here, and the demon left. That power, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But the disciples didn't understand that. They couldn't comprehend it. They could not imagine or believe in a God who would become human, a God who would show the power that Jesus was showing, but then who would allow himself to die at the hands of his enemies, who would rise from the dead three days later. That's just inconceivable. We're not even going there. We can't believe it. In our story, we saw that even the most dangerous, destructive demon is no match for the power of the Son of God, but the final blow to the kingdom of the enemy wouldn't come yet. It would come later when Jesus would accept the blow. He would die. Three days later, he would show what real power looks like, dying for those he loves and then rising to give them new life. The author of Hebrews wrote that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Jesus is the founder, the originator, the beginning of our faith, and he is the perfecter, the completer, the finisher of our faith. Faith begins and ends with Jesus. You can't just have faith in God generally. You can't just have faith in the goodness of human being. You can't just have faith in anything else. You need to have your faith in Jesus Christ who came, who died, who rose again, Power and humility perfectly balanced in the person and the gospel of Jesus. And what this means, if your faith is in him, it means that your salvation and your life, it doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on how strong your faith is. Because we believe in a Savior who is strong enough to save even our fickle hearts. It all depends on his faithfulness. And now what that means, if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, now it means when you live a life of faith, you can do so with faith and doubt joyfully at the same time. And you can admit it. You know, I believe, help my unbelief can be a cry out like the Father here. It can also be a simple statement when you rise up in the morning of, Father, I believe, help my unbelief. I'm such a fool. 
I know I'm going to be tempted to put my faith and trust into other things today. I know there are things that I'm believing that are impossible that you look at and you say, I could do that with a flick of my finger. Help me believe. Help my unbelief. A.W. Tozer once said, God is looking for people through whom he can do the impossible. What a pity that we plan only the things we can do by ourselves. What if in your schedule, in your daily calendar, you just wrote down a little reminder on the side, hey, I'm planning out all these things. I'm going to go to these meetings. I'm going to do this play date. We're going to make these dinners. I'm going to have this conversation with family members. But what if you just wrote on the side, all things are possible for the one who believes, or nothing is impossible with God, saying, God, there are things that I'm planning that you have much better plans for, things I couldn't even conceive of, the impossible that could happen today, tomorrow, sometime. I'm waiting for the impossible. I'm praying expectantly for it. Break through whatever barriers I'm imagining here. So, May this prayer of the Father be our prayer, the deepest cry of our hearts. Whenever we experience suffering that we feel like we cannot endure, whenever we face temptation, like we'll see next week in the book of Matthew, whenever we feel we are hopeless about things getting better, whenever we long for Jesus to return and make all things new, I believe, help my unbelief, I'm going to close with the words of the Apostle Paul. He ended the first letter to the Thessalonians with these words. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let me pray. Father God, Many of us here do believe. We've put our, our faith, our life, our trust in you, and yet we confess our unbelief. We confess the ways we've wandered, the ways we've strayed. Like a good shepherd, Jesus, bring us back out of your compassion and your love. See our helplessness. See how we are harassed and help your people with your power. We pray as we go from this place, that we would be people of faith and doubt who bring both, thing, our things, both of those things to you, the God who is faithful. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.